Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome to another edition of Legal Face Off on WGN. I am your co-host and today also uh, helping moderate in Joe Brand's absence. Joe is busy with the Blackhawks, his day job. But Tina, welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thanks, Rich. A chock, a, a, a show chock full of uh, breaking news today. But we're going to start with uh, the news involving Mike Pence and the subpoena to have him testify in the Trump probe. We've got Mitchell Sollenberger, who is the Associate Provost of Undergraduate Education and Student Success at the University of Michigan, Dearborn. He is also professor in the Political Science Program. Welcome to Legal Faceoff, Professor. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. So last or over the weekend, we know that Mike Pence uh, perhaps gave his most harsh criticism of President, ex-President Trump during the January 6th uh, attack on the Capitol. He said that uh, Trump was wrong and that he put his family in danger. That was a little surprising to some, given Mike Pence's stance so far on the subpoena to have him testify in the DOJ probe of January 6th. Talk to us what likely uh, defense Mike Pence, the ex-vice president, will use in arguing that he should not be called to testify. Sure. Yeah, it's uh, there, there's probably and it's probably not just a, a, a strong likelihood. This is something that uh, Mike Pence and his legal team have suggested that they're going to use the speech or debate clause to uh, defend against being compelled to uh, uh, appear before the grand jury in the DOJ subpoena. Uh, former President Trump has also said, and he's issued uh, documents in court asserting an EP claim, an executive privilege claim. So those are the two main lines, executive privilege and also a speech or debate clause. And the speech or debate clause is somewhat interesting in that you would think that Pence's former vice president isn't a legislative officer, doesn't have a legislative role, but that's what he's articulating. He's saying insofar as he was part of uh, the uh, uh, the legislative process in January 6th, it was part of certifying the election is his role as uh, vice president is presiding over the uh, Senate during that time. So uh, all members of the legislative branch under the Constitution, Article 1, Section 6, does give a, a partial immunity to uh, any kind of executive branch interference. And I say partial deliberatively. So, Professor, executive privilege is not explicitly referenced in the Constitution. Um, its use appears to date back to Watergate. At least that's when folks really, I think, started talking about the concept. How likely is it, do you think, that um, former President Trump's attempt to block Pence from testifying based on executive privilege, how likely is it, do you think, that that will actually work? So I'm on record of saying that the uh, any any kind of assertion from former presidents on executive privilege is baseless. 
uh, executive privilege is tied to the position of president. It's not tied to any other kind of uh, loci of power, if you will, or residue, uh, re residuals of power. Uh, you're right. Um, U.S. versus Nixon, 1974 Supreme Court case. It was the first time uh, the courts uh, enunciated executive privilege. It, had, it dates back, um, at least in terms of its historical use, not as an explicit you know, moniker saying executive privilege. It dates back to George Washington. Um, it, as it comes to a the ability to assert a claim, uh, it's on very precarious grounds. I mean, you basically will need former President Trump, and he's asserted it, to have President Biden back him up and say that this is validity and that we're uh, uh, I'm going to make an a, a executive privilege claim in this situation. Professor, how um, persuasive do you think it is for ex-Vice President Pence to make these allegations and claim that these discussions are privileged when he continues to talk about them. He wrote a book, right, in which he discusses a lot of these issues. And again, he spoke to the Gridiron Dinner over the weekend about his feelings. So on the one hand, he's claiming that these are protected, these are privileged, we can't have these kind of confidential discussions if I'm then called to testify about them. But yet he's talking about them and in fact making money through the sale of his book from them. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, uh, some of the officials in George W. Bush's administration after 9-11, uh, Condoleezza Rice, you name it. Uh, they they were refusing to testify before the 9-11 Commission, making the same arguments and appearing before Sunday talk shows. Uh, I think it does greatly diminish their claims that they are somehow immune or have some privilege um, that uh, allows them to withhold information or protect testimony. So uh, I, I think these are delaying mechanisms, particularly the speech or debate clause. And I say this because it is a line of reasoning that hasn't been hammered out in the courts. Right. When you look at the famous Supreme Court cases or lower court cases dealing with the speech or debate clause, you don't have an argument like this. A vice president exercising speech or debate. It's members of Congress. Right. Uh, you know, one of the famous ones is uh, William Proxmire. He was a senator. He used to give out those Golden Fleece Awards and he was uh, uh, he, he he was sued in court uh, for libel claims and went all the way to Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court even said for that particular case with this sitting member of Congress that the uh, privilege is not absolute. So even if a court says, yes, the vice president under speech or debate is able to claim a privilege and in his role is, is, is functioning as a legislative uh, member of the legislative branch, uh, it's a limited privilege, right? Um, you can filter, sort out the differences between what is your core quintessential legislative role and what's um, separate from that, if you will, or, or what is uh, something that a line of reasoning, a line of questioning that the DOJ can pursue. And I think that's at the heart of it. What's going to end up happening is that if it goes to the court and the court says, yes, there is a speech or debate clause protection for Pence, um, it's limited. My last question um, here in legal face-off, I'm just curious, as Rich mentioned earlier Pence went at Trump really hard at the gridiron dinner over the weekend. 
Um, this clearly has to be part of a bigger strategy, most likely for his run, but would love your thoughts as to the timing of it and the, I guess, the strength with which he went after Trump, especially it being like a day or two after he filed his motion. Yeah, Pence is walking a tightrope here. So this is more of the politics than the law, I think. Uh, I think he's doing a delaying action, right? Uh, You know, because he's got to get through the primary. Uh, If we're talking presidential elections and politics, he needs to get through the primary. The primary includes a lot of Trump supporters. So he needs to somewhat balance um, an independence from the former president because I think there is becoming uh, there's more of a wider swath of Republicans who don't necessarily um, uh, endorse Trump fully. And uh, but he has to balance that with the need to not make Trump an enemy. So him going after the former president a bit or at least uh, staking an independence, he's got to walk a tightrope there. And uh, it's going to be interesting how he does throughout the primary. And, and, you know, obviously, if he does become the Republican nominee, the general. That's Professor Mitchell Solomon, his book entitled Executive Privilege, Presidential Power, Secrecy and Accountability. Can be found on Amazon. It's got five stars, which is amazing. And his Michigan Wolverines, unfortunately, are not going to be playing in the NCAAs, but they begin NIT uh, action against Toledo this week. So tune them in. Professor Schoelberger, thank you so much for joining us on Legal Face Off. Thank you. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Face Off. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will and Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Next on Legal Face Off, we will be discussing the DOJ's lawsuit last week to block the JetBlue Spirit merger. Here with us to discuss it is Bill Baer, who is a visiting fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution, and he's served in this role since January of 2020. He also served as Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Antitrust Division of the U.S. Department of Justice from 2013 to 2016 and as Director of the Bureau of Competition at the FTC from 1995 to 1999. Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be with you. So, Bill, last July, JetBlue and Spirit Airlines agreed to merge after JetBlue bought Spirit for $3.8 billion which, if approved, would form the nation's fifth largest air carrier. Last week, the Department of Justice announced that it is challenging the proposed merger, claiming that it violates antitrust laws. 
please help us to understand this case and what the DOJ is specifically claiming about this merger. Glad to do it. First, JetBlue uh, is acquiring Spirit. Spirit is a low-cost carrier, an ultra-low-cost carrier, which means it puts price pressure on JetBlue and all the other big airlines. If JetBlue is allowed to go forward, according to the Justice Department complaint, that will totally eliminate Spirit's low-cost competition and deny consumers the benefit of a lower price point. Uh, that has been argued in the past with similar uh, mergers. Why do you think, if you do think, uh, this argument has a little more staying power in this case? Well, if you read the complaint, it is amazing uh, what JetBlue and Spirit executives say in private. JetBlue says, where we uh, uh, compete with Spirit, our fares are 17% lower in order to try and keep, uh, keep pace with Spirit. When Spirit exits a route where they were head to head with JetBlue, JetBlue is able to take its fares up as much as 30%. So this is meaningful head-to-head competition, particularly in and out of Florida. And if allowed to merge, JetBlue has already said it will eliminate uh, Spirit as a separate entity, uh, eliminate its identity as an ultra-low-cost carrier. What's the result? The result is JetBlue eliminates a competitor, consumers lose the benefit of the price competition that exists today. So it is a serious change to the competitive environment. So, Bill, JetBlue said that they were fully expecting that the DOJ would sue and intends to appeal. And they actually said that the timeline for 2024 that they had given when they originally um, announced this transaction was keeping in mind that the DOJ was likely to sue. You mentioned one of the things that JetBlue had mentioned in its favor. What other arguments do you think are in JetBlue's favor? Because there are some pretty compelling arguments, as you just alluded to, as to why this is an anti-competitive deal. Well, JetBlue says that uh, it will it will become the fifth largest carrier in the U.S., and that will make it uh, better enable it to compete with American United, uh, Delta, and Southwest. The problem with that argument is that two years ago, JetBlue entered into an alliance agreement with American Airlines up in the Northeast Corridor, and they've effectively eliminated competition between American and JetBlue up there. So the notion that JetBlue will be a more aggressive, more effective competitor is belied by what they did two years ago. And their own documents suggest that they will, uh, by eliminating spirit, actually be able to be more profitable and raise fares uh, at the expense of consumers who today enjoy the benefit of competition between spirit and JetBlue. Well, uh, we heard President Biden in his State of the Union address recently talk about uh, eliminating or changing bag fees. We've heard the Department of Transportation uh, talk about uh, rules that will allow families to sit together on airplanes. Uh, we heard Merrick Garland the other day discussing this lawsuit in opposition to this merger, discuss how you know we're going to be aggressive in protecting consumers' rights. The question is, 
are these appropriate things for the federal government to be involved in? Do we really want our president to be addressing baggage fees in the State of the Union? Um, aren't these things ad- adequately dealt with by the free market? In other words, if Spirit and JetBlue are charging too much for bag fees or something else, the market should correct that. Why should these lawsuits uh, try to take care of these issues? Well, what, first of all, in a very concentrated industry like the airline industry, uh, companies do well by not competing with each other. This is an oligopolistic market, meaning uh, the less you compete, the more money you make for your shareholders, but the more consumers pay in order to for those shareholders to benefit. One of the things that President Biden has done is say competition is a core principle under my administration. And I'm going to have the antitrust agencies like DOJ and the FTC, but also the Department of Transportation work together to make sure markets are competitive. And the airline industry, almost any outside observer will agree, is suffering from too few competitors. And the result is uh, consumers pay the price. And that was Bill Baer, who's a visiting fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. Thanks so much for joining us today, Bill. You're welcome. Next on Legal Face Up, we're discussing the Alex Murtaugh trial. Again, from a bit of a different angle, Tina, we've got... uh, Professor Amanda Vickery from Illinois Wesleyan University. She is the chair of the psychology department, written and spoken extensively on this subject and true crime in general. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. We all know now, by now, that after a six-week trial, about three hours of deliberation, South Carolina jury convicted Alex Murdoch of murder. He was sentenced to life in jail the next day. Why do you think, what was it about this particular case that captured everyone's attention? Well, if you think about it in terms of elements of of true crime stories and things like that, what what didn't this case have? Right. So you have multiple crimes. You have the murders. You have the financial crimes. You have the boat crash. You have the, the mystery of the housekeeper falling down the stairs. There's a lot going on there. And then I think the fact that he not only murdered his wife, but his child as well was a lot for people to take in. And then there were so many sort of interesting forensics elements of the trial with the the cell phone tracking and the blood spatter and the the video that Paul took and identifying the voices. I mean, there's something for people who are interested in all different elements of true crime. So what impact do you think television had on the public's consumption of this trial and any other trial that we've seen over the years that's sort of similar to this in terms of the intrigue level? Well, when stations are airing it live, you know, through the whole thing, of course, I'm sure you're thinking of the OJ trial as well from from back in the day and now this and there there have been others. It just makes it so it's hard to look away, right? You turn on the TV and you can either see the live feed of the trial itself or you can see the media covering the trial in every newscast. And when you're turning in and watching, that means that likely other people are as well. And it sort of gives this this common thing for people in society to talk about. So I would go into my classes and say, hey, is anybody up on the the Murdoch case? And one of my students said, oh, I just got finished watching the trial right before I came to class. And so everybody's talking about everybody knows what's going on. And so everybody wants to keep being involved. 
Yeah, and it's the trial, it's the podcast. Inevitably, there's a podcast associated. You're an expert on, you know, true crime podcasts. Um, there's social media, right, exploding at every word Murdoch says. You can be uh, rest assured is followed by thousands of people tweeting about it, right? Um, we know from uh, the jurors who were interviewed after the conviction, Professor, that they put a lot of stock into the fact that he was lying about this kennel video, right? He said he said he wasn't at the kennel then. We know he was. The video showed he was. And that was a real turning point in the minds of many jurors. What is it about the psychology of lying that once you don't believe a defendant on one thing, you are more susceptible to believe that he could have committed, as you mentioned, this murder, very vicious murder of his wife and child? Well, you can think about it from a personal point. Once someone in your life lies to you, isn't it harder to trust them from now on? I think of this even even with my five-year-old kid who the other day tried to lie to me that he washed his hands and he didn't. And now every time he tells me, I don't trust him. And I'm listening to hear if the water's on when he when he's in the bathroom, right? And so, and there and, and there was no real reason for him to lie about being at the kennels or not if he if he weren't involved, right? If he didn't know that that was something important to say, you know, regarding the the certain timeline. And so once you see him lying and lying to law enforcement and lying for such an extended period of time and only fessing up when he got caught, of course, it makes you doubt everything else that, that he had to say. You've said that the obsession with true crime is largely driven by women interested in self-protective lessons. And many followers might subconsciously ask themselves what they need to look for in their own lives. Can you explain that? Yeah. So my research found that, first of all, women are much more into true crime than men are. That doesn't mean that men aren't into it. My husband enjoys a, a dateline just as much as I do. But on average, it is it is women who are really driving this phenomenon. You can see that if you look at podcast listeners, statistics, television watcher, viewer statistics, et cetera. And I found that there are certain elements of these stories that tend to draw women in. And one of those is defense tactics. So if a victim escaped or used some clever trick or somehow got out of being kidnapped or killed, women were really interested in that. And they were also interested in the psychological content. So what in the killer's background caused him to become a killer or what set him off or what are the red flags? And when you look at all of this, it's all related to survival, right? To preventing being kidnapped or surviving a crime or keeping it from happening to you in some way. Um, and I think that makes sense as to why women are so into true crime, because when you look at a lot of the crimes covered by true crime, they're sort of the rare crimes kidnapped off the street or a home invasion or something that tends to happen to women. So by paying attention to this, we women can learn how to keep it from happening to us. Professor, last question in our legal face off. In addition to those gender dynamics, you know, we've got class always seemingly always associated with these high profile cases. In this situation, the Murdoch's uh, legally were you know, leaders of the community uh, in that part of South Carolina for something like 100 years, three generations. Um, we had hunting lodges, right? We heard of kennels. We heard of uh, speedboats, very expensive lifestyles, um, financial uh, crimes where uh, Alex Murta will be facing 99 other charges. How much of the fascination with this particular true crime is involving this difference in class that, hey, if these people are involved in this, then uh, that means that, you know, uh, they're not so much better than I, than I am. 
I think you hit the nail on the head there. There is something within all of us, I think, that enjoys seeing the the mighty fall, right? Whether it's a celebrity caught up in a scandal or a powerful politician, the wealthy, seeing their, their secrets exposed. And also the idea that he was partly where he was with all of his homes and his finances because he was stealing from people. Um, and I think that adds an extra air uh, element of, of anger towards him from the everyday person to, to, so to now know that he's sitting there in his, you know, prison uniform and is going to be sitting in a, a prison cell the rest of his life. I think people get a little bit of joy from that. That's Illinois Wesleyan university chair of the psychology department, professor Amanda Vickery covering this trial of the century until the next trial of the century, which is inevitable. <laughs> Please come back and join us. And thank you so much on, uh, for joining us on legal face up professor. Thank you. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey & Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Welcome to our Legal Grab Bag segment. Uh, without our friend Joe, we'll be co-hosting this, Tina. So I want to welcome two of our guests today. One is a return guest to the podcast. Rachel has been on at least once, maybe twice. Rachel Horbenko is the managing attorney for Fearless Legal Services, old friend of mine, old friend of the podcast. Rachel, welcome to Legal Faceoff. Hey, thanks for having me. And secondly, we've got Tony Iliacostas. Tony has many roles, but among them are he is the ABC News RNC Senior Manager. That's your day job. Yes, Tony? Yes, it is. And then among your other jobs is you're an entertainment and IP law professor at New York Law School. Tell us also the name of your new podcast and who you're co-hosting with. Uh, so the name of my brand new podcast is End Scene, an entertainment law podcast. I co-host it alongside my co-host, Evan Nahr who ironically is a uh, former student of mine from my intellectual property class way back at New York Law School. So he and I go through weekly a variety of different entertainment law topics from the week. And uh, it's a really great opportunity for us to talk about what's buzzing in the entertainment business from a legal perspective. All right, everyone tune into that. We'll get rolling with our first story, Tina. So E. Jean Carroll is uh, accusing former President Trump of, uh, of rape and in a ruling on Friday, a federal judge ruled that she can use against the former president, the now infamous uh, Access Hollywood tape that we saw during the initial run for presidency by Trump, in which he talks to Billy Bush on a bus 
And he talks about, you know, uh, what he called locker room uh, uh, humor, locker room language. But in that discussion, he talks about how celebrities can grope women without waiting for consent. Uh, the judge held that this can be used in this allegation because a, a jury can reasonably find from the tape alone that Mr. Trump admitted in the Access Hollywood tape that, in fact, he has had contact with women's genitalia in the past without their consent or that he has attempted to do so. And that can be used to argue to the jury that he's liable in this case. Um, basically, we've seen this kind of um you know, these arguments all the time, Tina. We saw it most famously in the Bill Cosby case, right, where uh, the modus operandi of Bill Cosby was allowed in because the allegation successfully was that this is his M.O., this is how he acts, and as evidence of his act in this case, his prior acts should be used. That's not always allowed in. Sometimes courts will hold that the uh, prejudicial value is outweighing the probative value of that information. They won't allow it in. In this case, it's allowed in. How do you think that'll impact the jury in this case? Well, you know, I think that this is a tape first and foremost. I remember when it first came to light many years ago, and I just remember being pretty dismayed by it, as I think a lot of people were. That being said, I think a lot of people are already aware of it and know about it. And I completely agree that the probative value far outweighs the prejudicial value here um, because it's I, I just think that it demonstrates um, an M.O. that Trump has and has been proud to boast as his M.O. for many years now. And I just I just don't see how whatever prejudicial value there may be here. Um, is outweighed by the probative value, because I, I think this is one of any number of data points where Trump has boasted about this type of activity. Yeah. Tony, what are your thoughts? Do you think uh, it is more likely that Trump uh, assaulted this woman, E. Jean Carroll, because he talked that way in the past? Of course, this is not evidence of him actually touching women or being convicted of touching women inappropriately. Uh, he has been accused, let's remember, by other women of sexually assaulting them. That's never really gone beyond the accusation. But do you think a jury will uh, find that it is more likely that he committed this crime, given the fact that he boasted about this discussion in the past? Absolutely. I think that this is your classic actual malice killer in a defamation suit. Um, for anybody that doesn't know, in defamation suits that deal with public figures, they have the extra leg to prove actual malice, meaning that the person making the allegation uh, knew that it was false or with reckless disregard knew that it was false and still made the statement anyway. So, you know, the victim here is clearly not going to make a statement unless it, there was some type of validity to her claim. And I think that when you have video of this sort where, you know, uh, former President Trump is proudly boasting about committing, uh, you know, uh, this type of activity with women in the past. I mean, if that doesn't feel like an admission, then I don't know what is. So certainly I think a jury, while they likely heard it in the past, I think that there's a lot to say that this will serve as very valuable evidence in this defamation lawsuit. So, Rachel, this is only one of several pending legal actions uh, involving the ex-president, who, of course, is now running for president, leading uh, in, in polls so far. Uh, politically, do you think this will have any impact on him? We know that the uh, Atlanta, uh, in, in the Atlanta case, uh, for allegedly paying Stormy Daniels out of campaign funds, 
that might soon lead to an indictment. Trump has been quoted as recently as last week saying, you know, bring it on. Uh, if I'm indicted, I'll probably go up in the polls. There's some validity to that. Do you think either being indicted in the Atlanta case or being convicted ultimately of rape, do you think this has any effect on Trump or his supporters? No, I mean, unfortunately, I don't think it does. He's already said, you know, what was it? I could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and like people. I mean, he's had so many things floating around and he still seems to have a very staunch supporter base. Uh, It's it's sad to me and weird, but, you know, I don't think it's going to have any effect. I don't think any of this has any effect. There's people that are going to support him no matter what. I think there's a reason why people call him Teflon Don in this situation like yeah, this. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Well, they used to call they used to call another president Teflon. That was Teflon Ronald Reagan. And <laughs> when you compare the things that slid off Ronald Reagan to the things that, you know, in the first few days of the campaign of Trump, let alone his presidency, yeah. it's like my how far we've come in the use of uh of the cookware analogy. But anyway, Tina, we got Tiger Woods in the news. Uh last week it was revealed that he has broken up with his uh, ex-girlfriend, Erica Herman, and she is now uh, looking for some return on their relationship. There is a alleged non-disclosure agreement that she's trying to invalidate. He, through his lawyers late last week, said that she doesn't have any right to any of uh, his uh, property or anything that was gained during their relationship. Talk to us more about this. Sure. Um, So it seems like Tiger Woods can't really catch a break. Um, Back in December, um, his ex-girlfriend, Erica Herman, filed a lawsuit against his trust, claiming that she is owed $30 million because Woods kicked her out of his house before what she claimed their oral agreement said was the term of her ability to live there. So in other words, she's saying, we had an oral agreement I was supposed to be allowed to live here for five more years. And by kicking her out of the house, he broke that. He breached that oral agreement, Um, which she didn't really elaborate on was the fact that they had broken up last week. She actually filed another complaint, um, as you mentioned, Rich, this time relating to the nondisclosure agreement that she had with Tiger Woods trying to be let out of the NDA, saying that NDAs can be nullified in cases of sexual assault. Interestingly, she has not yet made any formal accusations against Woods claiming that there was any sexual assault involved. So clearly people believe, at least some insiders say, that she's upset because he ended their relationship. And She was there for him through thick and thin, at least that's her version of the story, including during his recovery from his 2021 car accident, and that apparently things went downhill for the couple after that. Folks on the Woods side of the equation say that his frustration is probably stemming from his injuries and his inability to really recover fully his golf game. But apparently he was also getting restless with the relationship even before the accident. Um, You know, the complaint that she filed alleges that at this point, she's not really even sure what information she can disclose um, and is sort of tagging along with the lawsuit that she filed in December. 
So Rich, you know, this is just, I think, sour grapes here. I mean, if she can get out of this NDA, I mean, the whole purpose behind it is to protect famous people like Woods. My guess is that he's probably not the easiest person to live with. And a lot of times there's confidential information that people end up becoming privy to when they are with famous people and the famous people, when these, when they break up, don't really want all this stuff all over the press. So I just seems to me like a shakedown here. It feels to me like a shakedown, like she's making, you know, allegations to get him to roll over. I mean, I don't know. Well, I mean, listen, uh, mandatory arbitration clauses, prenuptial agreements, NDAs, oral tenancy agreements. Does this sound like the least romantic relationship in history? I mean, I I guess it's the product of being who Tiger Woods is and his rather sordid legal history. But, man, uh, that's where I swear that's where he is, Tony. Yeah. I mean, one thing I'll say just on this note about this oral agreement, um, let's contrast this with, um, I guess you want to call it an oral-ish agreement, but I'm going to call it more of a unilateral agreement. The situation that happened with Lady Gaga when her dog Walker was shot and then her dogs were missing, she put out an offer, no questions asked, $500,000 for the dogs back. And now the, the person that returned the dogs who was complicit in the whole shooting of the uh the dog walker is now going after her for 500 for that five hundred thousand dollar reward and then some but the question in that situation is how enforceable is a a, a, bi- a unilateral contract like that at least we have proof positive that that offer was out there but when you contrast that with what happened with here with tiger woods's ex-girlfriend you know this oral agreement all we can take it is is as hearsay because we there is no proof of it being out there in the open. We don't have, you know, it's just her word against everybody else's, honestly. Um, so I think that I think, you know, to use a classic New York City word, um, I, I find it a bit fugazi for the type <laughs> of, uh, you know, remark to be made out there. And then, of course, the NDA, I mean, the enforceability of that alone. You know, it's going to be hard to argue if she signed it under duress or uh, anything of that sort. Uh, honestly, I, I I completely agree with what Tina said. I think this is a classic case of sour grapes. And to what Rachel said, even this is a shakedown. I think this is, you know, kind of your classic case of, you know, somebody trying to twist the narrative a little bit. Now, if there's more detail that comes out, certainly that's going to be very interesting. But for now, what it what we have at face value, nothing's really adding up as a sensible case here. Well, well it doesn't make clear, sense to me. Oh, sorry, Rich. No, I mean, just to be clear, she is, you know, her her allegation is that the NDA is invalid under the uh, Speak Out Act, which does contain a carve out for victims of sexual assault. And I think in the complaint, she does check off the box of, of abuse. So, you know, listen, there is something there, I think, whether this is a shakedown or not, um, I think remains to be seen. But I don't know. Um, Tiger Woods, you know, has uh, has plenty of money. And there's an argument to be made, of course, that she went into this uh, as a, uh, you know, the, the bargaining positions weren't exactly equitable. She probably doesn't have the team of lawyers that that he does, not to say that's an excuse for signing something, but that will be her argument. What were you going to say, Rachel? I was just going to say it doesn't really make sense to me that he would promise for her to live there for a certain number of like set years. Like, I, I'm not sure where that came from. I mean, obviously, if they're not together, why would she still live there? I mean, that whole, what was it, 10 years? It doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. All right. Well, turning from one famous piece of real estate, Tina, to another, uh, in West London, 
there are two musicians feuding over some renovations. Um, tell us about that. Yeah, Rich. So back in 2014, singer Robbie Williams bought a $20 million historic house in West London. And he had some grand plans to develop an underground spa complex, which was going to include a, a big pool and a gym. Little did he know that this would open a huge can of worms with his next door neighbor, none other than Led Zeppelin guitarist Jimmy Page, who apparently has lived in his castle next door for about 50 years. So the dispute started about a year later when Williams submitted his planning application for the underground complex and Page immediately objected, saying that the vibration and ground movement from the construction was going to cause catastrophic damage to his own house and, oh, by the way, was going to encroach on the boundary wall between the two properties. Apparently, Page owns a pretty famous property in that borough called the Tower House, which was built in the 1870s by a famous Victorian architect. Apparently, other residents, in addition to Page, also piled on and had concerns about the noise and disturbance from the work that Williams wanted to have done. So Williams put this project on hold and in 2018 was trying to negotiate some other modifications to his property, um, including a summer house, a skylight, and taking down a poplar tree, um, and apparently tried dusting off his plans for the underground complex, and in 2019 was actually given permission finally to move forward with the underground complex with a few conditions, including that he had to take some pretty um, significant measures to prevent vibration and noise. All to say that the construction started up in January and was halted again when, and he was told, Williams was told that he had to actually go through the process again um, and had to reopen the planning application. He had to, again, get comments from residents. And apparently a decision is going to be made rich later this month. What's interesting is that this is one of like a half dozen um, pieces of real estate that Williams owns. So I guess the moral of the story here is if he can't get it to work with this piece of property, maybe he can go to like his other $50 million home somewhere and uh, make his underground complex. Well, what's amusing is like Robbie Williams is just keeps keeps pushing it, right? I mean, this is going on for, for many years. I think he dressed as Robert Plant for one concert uh, just to mock uh, Jimmy Page. I'm a huge Zeppelin fan, so I kind of side with... Uh, Jimmy Page, but this is now the, the big problem. This has now become Jimmy Page. I mean, uh, um, uh, yeah, Jimmy Page's full time job. You know, <laughs> instead of like getting a Led Zeppelin reunion while these guys are still able to bang out some songs, he's in court constantly. So just drop it. Two rich English guys feuding is not a great look for for music. Tony, who do you side with in this? Uh, I'm I'm signing with Jimmy Page on this one. But what, what I was going to say is. There better be a screenwriter out there, either in the UK or <laughs> Hollywood. Let's get a movie going. This could make yeah. like a great. This could make for a great comedy movie. Honestly, exactly, Rachel. <laughs> who are you with? I, I I'm with Paige. I mean, you stand I, with. I Paige. see his point. You know, you you've got a house that's built in the 1800s, and you've got somebody that wants to dig a bunch of crap underground next door. I mean, I would be worried about the stability of my building, also. Absolutely. All right. Well, here's some alternative. You know, I was trying to come up with a great title for this one. We came up with instead of a whole lot of love, whole lot of hate. Do you want to hear some quick, some uh, alternatives I came up with? You ready? Um, 
Stairway to the basement. <laughs> Babe, I'm going to sue you. Uh, hey, hey, who could I sue? That's my favorite. Uh, in my time of suing. Oh, I like that one. <laughs> and finally, one that needs no change in title. Communication breakdown. Perfect. Yeah. Nice. Right on to uh, Grumpy Cat, uh, Tina. Um, I didn't know that Grumpy Cat was such a phenomenon. Uh, in another lawsuit, the uh, owner of the Grumpy, Grumpy Cat IP won like, what, $750,000 protecting its IP. They're seeking to protect it here as well. What the hell is Grumpy Cat and why are there so many people trying to rip it up? Oh, come on, Rich. You don't know Grumpy Cat? Grumpy <laughs> Cat was this really famous cat that was known for all these poses and all of these little sayings to pictures talking about how grumpy she was. And she hasn't been with us now since 2019. So she's been gone for a few years, but she's definitely not forgotten. And although she may no longer be with us, she is definitely with us in spirit and is mighty litigious. So um, as you mentioned, Rich, um, what's interesting is that the owners of the company that merchandises her images, and it's currently run by, I think, her her father, so to speak, her human father, um, they have actually filed 40 <laughs> lawsuits for, um, on behalf of Grumpy Cat. So I love Grumpy Cat. But anyway, this latest lawsuit was filed in Illinois federal court last week and is against alleged counterfeiters in China who apparently are ripping off Grumpy. Um, she became a phenom after her online debut on Reddit in 2012 and writing on that social media and TV fame, her her owners protected her IP pretty aggressively through copyright and trademark filings. And the company still markets a lot of products, even though she's passed away. And the lawsuit is in a sealed filing. And um, apparently, this lawsuit sues several individuals and business entities located outside of the U.S., including in China. As you mentioned, Rich, um, back in 2018, Grumpy Cat's owners won a $710,000 jury verdict in California against a company that breached a licensing agreement that allowed it to market a line of cat-branded Grumpachinos. Um, they're very aggressive. As I mentioned earlier, they filed over 40 lawsuits to enforce Grumpy Cat's IP. I mean, it's a gold mine, so it's very easy to understand why they do that. So, Tony, why is it like... What very this is in your wheelhouse as well as Tina's, obviously. So, like, what can you do? Can you call it the angry cat? Can you call it the grumpy feline? You know, how aggressive can you be in protecting this? And secondly, how do you recover against? I think the I think the complaint says an unnamed, you know, Chinese entities. Is it at all feasible to recover from who knows who's out there hacking this stuff? So uh, let's address the first part. Can you call it something else other than grumpy cat? Possibly, but but the big but here is if uh, the alternative names are likely to cause consumer confusion, and that's the heart of trademark infringement. Um, in this case, the lawsuit is specific to trademark infringement and false designation of origin, among other claims. But the question is, if somebody else were to come in and create Angry Feline or some other alternative name, are those going to create some type of consumer confusion or maybe even dilution? In trademark dilution, uh, famous brands can pursue that um, if there is some type of 
distancing between the consumer and the origin brand, or if there's some type of tarnishment that exists uh, as a result of somebody else's inappropriate use of an existing mark. So in this situation here, that's what it's all going to boil down to. There's an eight-factor test that is usually used to assess consumer confusion. A lot of it is driven based on actual hard data beyond anything else. But that's what's going to be at the heart of this lawsuit. Now, in terms of collecting the money, that's a whole different ballgame because now what you have here is potential regular trademark infringement lawsuit. But also, this feels very criminal trademark infringement ask as well because maybe there is some type of you know misappropriation of this mark and you're just selling this on third-party platforms like Alibaba or Wish.com or any other platform where it's an unregulated marketplace. Is there a likelihood that they could win? Yes. But is there a likelihood that they could get the money? That's a whole different ballgame. And, you know, I'll, I'll be damned if that if they actually do get the money, because honestly, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like it's going to happen, unfortunately. But so worth a shot. A whole absolutely. other ball game or a whole other ball of yarn. Tina, <laughs> moving on to uh, from one angry animal to another. I'm doing a good Joe, you know, Joe brand segue uh, <laughs> here. So um, Alexandra Paul is a former Baywatch star. She was one of the lifeguards. She was the one with the shorter hair, not the Pamela Anderson or Yasmeen Bleef. Extra points if you can remember Yasmeen Bleef from the 90s. But anyway, hugely popular TV show, really a show that was viral before there was such a thing. She's on trial right now in L.A., you know, for um, the crime of not being in Baywatch, which we know is a crime against humanity. Uh, some of the direct that we saw there for eight or nine years, but for stealing chickens. Uh, Alexander Paul is seen on video running up to the back of a uh, large truck and with another um, alleged co-conspirator, she is pulling out chickens and running away with them. She's part of a, uh, a group called Direct Action Everywhere, and she's saying that we're rescuing sick chickens from a factory farm that has a history of abusing them. Um, and again, Foster Farms is the company that was involved with the chickens here, and She's on trial for uh, a criminal action here. You might laugh at this, but there have been similar trials. There was a case in, in Utah by other members of direct action where they were acquitted, believe it or not, for stealing, taking, it turns out per the jury, two piglets from a farm uh, owned by Smithfield Foods. I don't know what the jury's thinking was in there, but in this case, it seems pretty cut and dry. Chickens don't belong to her, Tina. She's stealing them. We, have, of course, can understand and perhaps sympathize with the movement, but I don't know, is stealing chickens the way to go? I agree, Rich. I mean, at the end of the day, I think, you know, this whole the fact that this has even gone to trial is remarkable. But at the end of the day, I think she's trying to draw attention to the issue. Right. Ordinarily, I think, you know, if it wasn't really embarrassing to her or really you know, something that she wanted to sweep under the rug, she wouldn't let this go to trial, but she's trying to shine a light on something that she believes in. At the end of the day, she did break the law. She trespassed. She stole somebody else's belongings. But this is in her mind and the organization's mind, this is beyond that. This is to shine light on something that they think is a horrible state of affairs. Rachel, if you were on this jury in LA and you showed up for trial thinking that you're dealing with another Alex Marta or some high profile crime... You're sitting there deciding whether this Baywatch star should be convicted of a misdemeanor for stealing chickens. Where you're like, oh, wow, I got the, I got the I mean, there's actually video, right? So, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know how you can say you're not committing a crime. I mean, in, in the piglet thing, you know, after looking at that article, I'm surprised that they got off on that one. I mean, it, they're clearly stealing. 
But, you know, Tina's right. The whole point of this is to raise awareness. And the fact that we're even talking about it is is what this organization wants. That was definitely the end game there. And what I was going to say also is I'm sure that there's a torch professor out there in America that wants to use this as a back pattern (laughs) for a final exam. So torch professors take notes. Yes. Stay watching chicken. You can't make there you go. Up. You can't beat that mix. Yeah, moving on, on to another lawsuit. This one involving uh some foreign cars that are maybe surprisingly the most popular cars among thieves in this country. Yeah, Rich. So as we talk a lot about on legal face-off, um, the whole problem started with social media here. Last summer on TikTok and other social media platforms, there were videos going around challenging teenagers to steal certain cars off the street using a USB cord um, and actually showing them how to do it. And it was certain makes and models of Kia and Hyundais that use a mechanical key rather than a key fob or a push button to start the car. And this has been going on across the country, including here in Chicago. Oftentimes, these stolen cars also are involved in additional crimes. And so it's additional crimes beyond car theft that are also surging as well. Apparently, these cars lack a device called a standard engine immobilizer. Um, And so what's going on here is there's certain insurance companies that actually have said because of these um, increases in stealing of these cars, there's certain insurance companies like State Farm and Progressive, they're actually no longer going to issue policies because these cars are too easy to steal. So there have been lawsuits filed, including a class action lawsuit filed in California against Kia and Hyundai. Um, And it's claiming that both companies decided to rely on older technology that led to the increase in thefts. Kia and Hyundai have recently responded, saying that they are offering free software that will give an upgrade to the cars um, and will actually be free so that it will circumvent any expensive options for solving the problem. What's interesting is that this software patch, some say, is not actually a formal recall, which is something that many of the industry experts and and auto safety groups are saying um, Kia and Hyundai should do, um, particularly since in their mind, um, these cars violate federal safety standards. So Rich, I don't know, it's uh, the way of the world these days with social media. It's crazy to me that people actually talk about how to steal cars and other crimes on on TikTok, but this is not the first nor the last that I'm sure we'll be talking about stuff like this. Yeah, most of it is joyriders or uh, these cars being used in the commission of other crimes. But uh, Tony, I got two words to solve this problem. You ready? I'm ready. Uh, Club. Let's go. (laughs) That's right. 90s style. Get a club and we're done. When you hear that clank, you know that your car is protected. Exactly. (laughs) What happened to the club? It's still around. I see it a lot in New York. It's it's it's, in the older cars for sure. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, going back of what Tina is saying, I mean, you know, uh, the software patch, I think, is not really the best uh, apology to people who already were victims of the theft to begin with. So, you know, the whole essence of a lawsuit and when somebody pursues a lawsuit is for them to be made whole as a result of whatever injury or harm they suffer. So how can you make somebody who was a victim of a theft 
whole by giving them a software patch. So I'm all in on this class action lawsuit. This is really, really important. I think this could set the landscape for insurance pol- insurance companies with their policies, with matters of this sort. Certainly, this is going to be a wake-up call for um, auto manufacturers when it comes to safety mechanisms, especially we've made a massive improvement over the years with that on that front with newer cars. But this is going to be a very important case from a class action point of view. And Rachel, you know, we know here locally in Chicago, um, carjackings are up like 55% in the last year or so. Yeah. So, you know, there's a little bit more to it than just joyriding sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, commissions of drive-bys and, you know, armed robberies and other things like that. I mean, definitely, you know, people steal cars to commit those crimes as well. All right, well, our final story here on Legal Faceoff involves the Oscars, which I found totally unwatchable last night. I stopped watching about an hour in and then I caught up. All you really need, here's my theory on the Oscars, right? You need monologue, you need the four actor winners, you need maybe director, best picture, and then you need, of course, the in-memoriam. That takes you maybe like 27 minutes. What the hell else are you doing with the rest of your night? I was watching Lakers Knicks, so I'm glad I, I punched out because it was, it, was, it was a terrible show in my opinion. But anyway, the Oscars last night, thankfully, Tina, did not involve another criminal assault uh, on the stage. I love when Jimmy Kimmel said that, uh, you know, this year we've got security measures in place. If you attack someone on stage, we're going to wait 19 minutes and give you an Oscar. Um, (laughs) That didn't happen last night. It happened last year. You know, we've talked before about the implications legally of the slap. There's still a chance that someone brings a lawsuit, right? There's statute limitations that haven't expired a year later. But it was interesting to note some other lawsuits involving the Oscars. And I think the most common one, Tina, is the Academy preserving the uh, the IP and the um, the specialness of their statues by enforcing a little known clause, perhaps in the fifties they put a clause into the agreement that when you win an Oscar, the Academy Award, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, to be more specific, has the first right to purchase that Oscar for a fixed sum of guess how much? Ten, ten bucks. bucks. Ten bucks. <laughs> that ten bucks uh, is meant to prevent people from doing what they have done or attempted to do which is sell this valuable prize, one of the most valuable prizes out there, uh, on eBay. Um, In addition, there's litigation involving people trying to replicate the Oscars, right? We talked a lot about uh, whether you could use the term grumpy cat. Well, you certainly can't use the term Academy Awards. You certainly can't use the term Oscars, but there have been people on Etsy, eBay, uh, calling Academy metal figurines for sale. There was one case where they went after uh, this one company and they turned over, they shipped literally back the statues, except for a few more, which they continued to sell. So the short answer here is, Tina, understandably so. The Academy is very aggressive in preserving their IP. After all, this is, again, one of the most famous statues in history. Yeah, Rich. I mean, this is really no different than, for example, the Olympics, Super Bowl, et cetera, in terms of your ability to use the name or not use the name. Um, and I think that they're really smart. And I'm sure it's the full-time job of many an IP litigator um, in terms of trying to enforce this, whether it's trying to take down illegal sales of unauthorized reproductions of it or trying to sell actual awards on eBay. 
I just have to wonder, like after going through what you go through as an actor to win that award, why would you want to sell it on eBay? I mean, I understand that sometimes people are hard up for cash or they're making a statement, a political statement or whatnot about when, when they go to sell it. But um, I mean, good good for them because I mean, this is what um, they are practicing. They are well, here's the answer, a valuable and a very valuable asset here. Isn't it family in one case? After somebody passed away, wasn't it their family that was trying yeah, to sell it? Frequently their family. But I mean, the answer is like, when's the last time you paid to see a Mira Sorvino movie or a Roberto Benigni movie, right? I mean, the answer is uh, fame is fleeting and uh, you don't always make as much money as some of the perennial Oscar winners that we've seen last night. But Tony, here's my question. You know, if you go down to the Kodak Theater, which is like literally in a mall at Hollywood Highland, there's a million souvenir shops nearby. Um, you can buy little plastic Oscar figures with your name on it, with whatever. How is that legal? How is that not being enforced? Well, it's not legal. Uh, that's the short answer. But uh, it's kind of like the the moment of reckoning we have here in New York City, where if you walk down Canal Street, you can see tons of counterfeit handbags, glasses that are accredited to Gucci and Versace and Chanel. But the problem is police can't touch any of those guys unless they have probable cause. So you can go after them for criminal copyright and trademark infringement. Once they have the probable cause and, you know, they get the warrant and they'd be able to confiscate it. And it happens every so often. So I think the same situation applies with those fake vendors out, outside the Kodak theater. But one thing I will say is, uh, you know, in doing research uh, for a video that I was doing for my Instagram account, one thing I found was that the Ampus has registered a variety of trademarks, of course, with Oscars, Academy Awards, like you just said a moment ago, Rich. But what's interesting is the statuette itself is registered not as the traditional trade dress that you commonly see, like with the Super Bowl Vince Lombardi trophy or with the World Series trophy. Rather, it's registered in classes of good services related to pre-recorded tapes for what seems like marketing to let people know these are the films that are available or you know up for a win this year in the Oscars. So if I were if I were the Academy, I would make every effort to go ahead and start registering trade dress for the statuette because they're calling it copyright protected. And certainly it is because it's a statuette and it's a work of authorship under the context of copyright law. But you're seeing Nike uh, register the design of their sneakers. You're seeing luxury handbag companies register the design of their handbags like Hermes with the Birkin bag. No different here with the Oscar statuette. You definitely need to register that as trade dress. All right. Last question. We'll go around the horn, Rachel. We'll start with you learning a little bit more about our guest. Favorite Oscar winning film of all time. Favorite best film Academy Award winner. Uh, Rocky. Good choice. Just saw Creed 3 yesterday. No Rocky in Creed 3. Barely a mention of Rocky. Tony, favorite best picture award winner of all time. Um, I'm, <laughs> I was going to say La La Land, but unfortunately I got snubbed by Moonlight. But uh-huh. I, I like Moonlight too, so I'll go with Moonlight. <laughs> Excellent choice. Tina? Godfather. Yeah, that's a good one. Good choice. My favorite is Raging Bull, another Rocky movie. I mean, another uh, boxing theme movie. Listen, you're all award winners with us. Tony Iliacostas, Rachel Herbenko, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on Legal Faceoff. And uh, Tina, thank you. We'll see Joe next time. I'm exhausted from the uh, hosting role. I'm happy to move on to the next one. We'll see you next time on Legal Faceoff. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Faceoff. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.